This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast. It's election day in Ontario. Polls are open, uh, well, as of seven minutes ago, and they'll be open until 9 o'clock tonight. If you have not voted in an advance poll, vote today. You must. Uh, I'll throw you back to my commentary from about an hour ago at 8 10 this morning. Uh, because there's all sorts of talk about what's going to be happening here, and there are some people that are so disenchanted about all three of the the main party leaders, and I get that. I, lots of people in this province feel that way. Some are just not going to vote at all. That's wrong. Some are going to go there and right to the polling station and decline their ballot, and I guess that's kind of a feel-good exercise for those voters, but it's not going to help the situation at all. The reality is, whether you decline your vote or whether you don't vote at all, Somebody is going to be the next premier. They're not simply going to say, well, gee, a lot of folks didn't have any interest, so let's just forget about it. Somebody, one of those two people that are in the polls, leading in the polls right now, is going to be the premier. And if you are concerned about things like health care and education and transit and so many other things, policing, all these issues that we talk about on a daily basis here, if you're concerned about that, and you should be as a taxpayer and as a resident, then get out and vote. And choose somebody, because somebody in that legislature is going to make the decisions about those things, all of those things, and our quality of life over the next four years. Vote. Uh, As we mentioned, uh, it's really a choice between two. I mean, the polls are the polls. Uh, And, well, whether you want to believe that Doug Ford is ahead or Andrew Horvath is ahead, it looks at this stage as if, well, one of them is going to be the premier. And uh, they both, of course, have made their uh, last-minute pitches to try to get those votes. Mr. Ford? My friends, this will be the most important election in a generation. The stakes have never been higher. Ontario's economy, your jobs, and the future of our province are all at stake. My friends. Anyway, enough about that. And of course, Andrea Horvath. This campaign is all about the future of our province. It's all about making sure children can build a great future here. It's all about making sure that our seniors have the the dignity and quality of life that they deserve. And you know what? That's something that we together can achieve. Uh, so they're all saying the right things or the things that they want, they think we want to hear. Uh, so it's going to be up to us now to decipher this and weed through the chase and come up with the, 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 the gist of what we want to hear and what we want to do and what we want to see happen here. Uh, the uh, third leader, of course, Kathleen Wynne, conceded last weekend and said that she pretty much knew that she wasn't going to form the government. Um, I, I want to talk about that strategy and a lot more. Our election coverage uh, begins at 6 o'clock tonight here on 900 CHML with our uh, pregame show, as it were, since the polls don't close till 9 o'clock. But we will assemble here at 6 o'clock. Uh, I will be here with uh, CHML news anchor Rick Zamprin and uh, Richard Brennan, a retired journalist, of course, who's covered uh, Queen's Park and Parliament Hill for so many years will be with us in studio. And, of course, uh, we have CHML reporters out in the field at all the uh, campaign headquarters, and uh, we'll be bringing you up-to-the-minute reports. And then we'll uh, also hook up with our friends at Global TV uh, just after 8 o'clock to give you province-wide results. Richard Brennan uh, will be with us here in studio, but he's with us right now by telephone to talk about uh, what we might be seeing later on tonight. Richard, great to have you with us, and uh, looking forward to talking with you and having you in studio here today. Oh, I am too, Bill. It'll be very interesting, as it always is. I got to tell you, on election day, I'm a bit of a kid, quite frankly. Uh, I find it election day pretty exciting because it's it's a mystery that will unfold, you know, within hours. Well, yeah, because the polls tell us one story, and and I'm not suggesting they're all wrong, but they have been in the past right now. But there are so many extraneous factors that come into play today 
that don't come into play when somebody picks up the phone and says, yeah, I'll take your poll for you. Well, exactly. But, you know, one of the big stories of this election, I think, is a, is a minor a minor side story, I guess I should say, rather, is whether the liberals will even get party status. And I'll tell you, this is, this is a, a show that I'm interested in watching as well, because... God, to think that the government, you know, might not even get the eight seats it's required is, uh, it boggles the mind, quite frankly. Well, I mean, we've seen this happen once before. There was a provincial election, I guess, three or four cycles ago, where the NDP actually, I think, fell one seat short of that, didn't they? Well, yeah, it was 12 seats then. Oh, yeah. And and uh, they, uh, well, I'll, I'm being unkind here, but, you know, they whined and complained until the, uh, the liberals... Uh, you know, uh, actually reduced it to eight seats and gave them party status. Uh, and, and that's the last that, time it happened. And wouldn't that be embarrassing that after they reduced it to eight, the liberals themselves may be the ones that fall short? Well, it, it could, you know, there's one poll I said that, you know, I saw that said that looks like they could get nine seats, but who knows? That's what's great about elections. I mean, really, you know, you, know, you can read the tea leaves, you can, you know, read the polls and that, but it, you know, at the end of the day, it will be the voters who dictate who's going to run the show. And therein lies the problem. And, and I, I'm hearing, and I'm sure you are, Richard, uh, whether you're hanging around at the gym or talking to a lot of your friends or former colleagues that they are still doing this thing, there's a lot of disenchantment. I mean, in, in some elections, we've seen somebody who has risen above the crowd, and we think that's going to be the person. Uh, and you can kind of see that. We saw that in the last couple of weeks of the last federal election. It was a rather unusual story, but the guy who was in third place, Justin Trudeau, looked pretty clearly to be the winner about a week and a half or so before the election. Now, I know Andrea Horvath and Doug Ford are tied in the polls right now, uh, but I, I, I don't know which way this is going to go because it, now, it, as you mentioned, it, it's, uh, it's really down to who's going to actually vote. And, and you don't know what that number is going to be. Well, I think you saw I tweeted this morning. When I was... When I turned 18, and as I said in my tweet, when the, when the earth was starting to cool, um, <laughs> I, I couldn't wait to vote. And I voted, you know, I've tried to vote unless I was out on a campaign trail and couldn't, but I've tried to vote every possible election there's been since that time. And, and I, I just find it, you know, I just find, I can't understand when people don't vote or even decline your vote. I think that's a bit of a cop out. I mean, I mean, I think it's self-serving. Oh. I, I think that makes well. I made them. I made my point. You haven't made any point. Yeah, you did. What did you? What point did you make? You know, do you really think they're going to? You know, the the elections, Ontario people are going to say, "Well, wait a second here. Thirty percent of the people declined their vote, so we're just not going to form a government. Somebody's going to be the premier, no matter what." Well, exactly. In other words, the way we, our system works, they're going to count the votes that are given, and that's all that matters. And if it's 20% of the electorate, so be it, and we're going to get stuck with that government. Well, and talking about government, we have, you know, we have two parties that are, you know, one of the parties, the NDP or the Conservatives, are going to, you know, form a government that's pretty clear or a minority government. And they're diametrically opposed, you know, opposed, uh, quite frankly. I mean, we have, we have one that is, you know, running on bumper sticker politics, you know, buck a beer, you know, uh, we're, we're, you know, we're going to make Ontario great again, etc., etc. And then you've got, you know, got the NDP promising everything under the 
son, you know, free this, free that, and you know, nobody's going, you know, nobody's going to be left aside in this government. Well, you know, that's all well and good, and we all would like to see that, but you know, there's just no, there just isn't the money there anymore. So, regardless of who forms this government, they are really going to have to take a long, hard look at what they do and what they promise and what they actually put in, in, into place because there just ain't the money there. And, and these, regardless of who, what party it is, they're going to have to realize this and take, you know, take stock of just how badly off the, you know, the province is in terms of debt. Well, and, and that's why I know you and I have talked about this at great length over the last couple of weeks. But it's it's obviously I think it's it's the the theme of this election is tell us what you're going to do and how you're going to pay for it and and uh, they seem very reticent to do that and I mean even the PCs who are preaching fiscal responsibility, uh, Mr. Ford has promised this that now I'm going to give you a tax cut I'm going to give you this we're going to hire more nurses uh, and every time somebody uh, says well how are you going to pay for this it's well that's all the time we have bingo he's gone off onto the bus again. Well, uh, even uh, you know. Sure, his 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 platform is is shy of details, no question about that. But the, even the platforms that the other parties put out, if you put it under a microscope, you, you know you wouldn't want to take that to the bank, either any of them, because they really don't add up. You know, they they these are election promises. It gives you a guide, but you can't. That's all it is. This isn't hard and fast rules because you know. I know, and all the listeners know out there, as soon as the next government takes over, regardless of who it is, oh, God, they'll be wringing their hands. Oh, woe is us. We didn't know that books were as bad as they were, et cetera, et cetera. They've already prepared that speech. Oh, yeah. Oh, absolutely. And and it may be true. I'm not suggesting it is. But every government says, you know, the, the previous government couldn't left the couldn't left the books worse off. And and that's always going to be the excuse. And the the other element to this too of course is is the hidden surprises. And and you know we've been burned before when we we look at past elections, you know, and a lot of people bought into Mike Harris on the common sense revolution. It was a booklet. We got to read it and say, "Well, that looks pretty good. Hey, tax cuts. Hey, well, this is fabulous." But he didn't tell us that he was going to do it by downloading stuff onto our property taxes. He didn't tell us he was going to sell the 407. Uh, you know, he didn't tell us he was going to have current value assessment and uh, an amalgamation of some communities. Boy, that went over like a lead balloon. And, those uh, checks, and, and they didn't tell us that those checks he sent out to all, each and every one of us in Ontario. Remember that? Yeah, oh, yeah. yeah 200 bucks. all borrowed money. Yeah. Every yeah. last cent. And and when Dalton McGinney got reelected, and only talked about the environment, we didn't know about the Green Energy Act and all these contracts they were going to sign. We didn't know about the mis- you know management that was going to happen with Orange and with e health. These are all the little surprises we get after the or fact. The health we, tax, don't forget that the, one. Oh the yeah, biggest uh, tax in Ontario history. Do you still have a copy of the uh, the document that uh, Dalton McGinney signed that said he wasn't going to raise taxes? It must be in the bottom drawer someplace. Oh, I'm sure I got it somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> but like, like you say, you know. It, you know, you just these things are you, you just can't take in the bank. You you look at it and you go, okay, I kind of know which direction they're going in. But I, I'll tell you, with with Mister Ford, I, I'm not sure what direction he's going in. I uh, th- that and I think that's where uh, some you know a lot of the voters are a bit reticent because they're not sure 
how he's going to conduct himself. Like, whose interest is he going... I'm not taking sides here. I'm just, you know, laying out the cards. Whose interest is he going to represent? And I think that's what's going through people's heads as they head into the uh, the polling booth. Well, and that's a question we need to ask of all the leaders. I mean, who are they beholden to? Uh, and, and, you know, there's some concerns about Andrea Horvath and the folks that support the NDP. Uh, there's there's Doug Ford, and, you know, we still have that image in our heads of that meeting he had with all those developers that said, Greenbelt, Schmeenbelt. Yeah, yeah, guys, you got a bill, go ahead. Save it over. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, so what's going to happen? We just don't know at this stage. There is a, a subplot to this that I find interesting, and it's not going to change the dynamic to a great degree here in the province of Ontario. But there's a pretty good chance we might actually get a Green Party delegate elected, and that could be Mike Schreiner, the leader of the party up in Guelph. I think that's very interesting. Um, because I know poor old Mike has been trying for years and years and years, and I think he's finally going to break through. And what better place than Guelph? Because Guelph is very green. And I'm not talking about in terms of Green Party. They have been so advanced in terms of, of dealing with environmental issues for years now and so he's a he's a perfect fit up there well and from what i'm told from from folks i know up in guelph i have family and friends up there uh, they like him he's a nice guy i mean they certainly know him because he's campaigned for a number of elections it's an open seat up there liz sandals held that seat of course the, the former education minister so it's that evens the playing field just a little bit and i think he's got a shot oh i think he does too and, and you know, there's a very popular uh, woman whose name just doesn't come to mind right now up in uh, up in the Orangeville area who's running for the Green Party. I, like, I don't think she'll win, but I think she might put a dent in in the uh, conservative stronghold, which it is. How do you measure? And we'll we'll talk about this after six o'clock tonight when when we get in the studio here and start looking at at what might be happening come nine o'clock. But voter turnout, which is, is pathetically low in Ontario, we actually have one of the worst turnouts in North America. I think it's fifty one percent the last provincial election. But how do you gauge that? I mean, with the disinterest that, that you and I have heard from the electorate, my concern is that that, that could actually fall below fifty percent. And and how does that skew those numbers? Well. Bill, I got to tell you, I hope you're wrong. I hope I am too. Uh, I, I'm, I'm, I'm not being so negative on this one. Uh, I think it's going to be a decent turnout, be, you know, because you know people, people want to send the liberals a message. Maybe that's one of the reasons people get out to send them a message. You know, we don't want you, or they might say they might be saying, "Well, we don't want Doug Ford." And we're going to, you know, go out and show show them that we don't want them, or it might be, you know, just the opposite, you know, the NDP. It, but I, th- I really believe that I, you know, that it's going to be bigger this time. We got younger voters coming out now who are starting to take an interest in politics and maybe voting for the fact, you know, first, second, or third time, and they're showing interest in it. And I'm, I'm really, I'm really kind of chuffed in terms of. The turnout. I think it's going to be a, a better than a lot of people think. You just hit on one. I think one of the key stories here is that eighteen to twenty-four demographic. That's the largest cohort in, in the voting uh, public right now. It used to be seniors. Now it's that group. Are they going to show up? And if so, where are they going to go? That that actually could be a determining factor. Well, it's their future. And if they, you know, if they don't take advantage of it, if they, you know, they don't, uh, they don't use their vote or as as they should. Uh, I mean, it's 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 really it's really all up to them, 
and I'm I'm hoping that uh, they'll they'll live it up to it. Quite frankly. Well, we'll see what happens. Uh, we'll start uh, the ball rolling at 6 o'clock tonight here on CHML when uh, you join us here in studio. Uh, looking forward to it, Richard. It's going to be a blast. Uh, and in the meantime, for everybody else, get out there and mark your ballot, and uh, we'll count them up for you later on. Thanks so much for this, and we'll see you in a few hours. Okay, well, take it easy. Okay, Richard, Richard uh, Brennan is going to join us, of course, uh, in studio here. Uh, I don't know how many of these elections he's covered federally and provincially. Uh, too many to count, I guess, at this stage. But this one, this one counts for a lot of things and a lot of ways. And that's why it's so important that you get out there and mark your ballot. And, of course, 6 o'clock tonight, we start our coverage right here on 900 CHML. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Hamilton uh, is in a position right now to negotiate the redevelopment of Pier 8. Now, we've been talking about this for years uh, and it looks as if we're getting close to the finish line on this, and that's about picking a, uh, a proposal uh, for what's going to happen on Pier 7 and 8 uh, downtown by the waterfront. It's, uh, it's, it's been a long time coming, and yesterday City Council, uh, behind closed doors, much to the chagrin of an awful lot of people, uh, debated the uh, proposals and uh, finally came out into open session and uh, talked about the one that they had selected. This uh, uh, consortium brings best-in-class concept plans uh, that are innovative and that reflect our city's values and our city's vision. Councillor Jason Farr, who of course represents Ward 2, that includes the waterfront area that uh, we're speaking of. Uh, joining us to talk about the proposal and uh, the way going forward on this is Chris Phillips. Uh, he is the city's lead on the West Harbor Waterfront Project and uh, joins us once again to bring us up to speed. Chris, thanks so much for the time. Good to have you with us today. Good to be with you, Bill. Uh, we, we've gone through the process, and, and I think everybody is aware of the fact that you narrowed this down, and then obviously the, the city staff came up with a preferred candidate. Uh, let me ask you, why Waterfront Shores? What attracted the staff to this proposal? Well, Bill, you've been on council before, so you certainly realize that there's a procurement process that's in place, so I'm not going to actually be able to compare uh, between the different proposals. No, I get that, uh, but I'd like to know what I'd like to know what was the, what were the positives about this one. Uh, there's some key features to it uh, that that have been uh, readily out there. The uh, the condominium, uh, the project itself, first of all, has a great core team members: it's Citizen Development Corp, Fernbrook Homes, GFL Environmental, Graybook Realties. Uh, the architectural design team is actually uh, uh, several uh, different designers, K- led by KP, uh, KPMB Architects, GHL, Omar Gotti Architects. Super cool. Uh, their plan calls for about 1,292 condominium units spread on uh, 20 separate buildings. There's actually at-grade townhouses located on all residential blocks, which is a pretty unique aspect of, of their proposal. Uh, 5% of that, which is 65 units, will be affordable housing. Um, they'll be administered directly by Habitat for Humanity in Ham- Hamilton here. Um, all of those units actually will be two-bedroom or larger, which really speaks to a, uh, a key element that the community re- was really talking about. About as, as far as having it family friendly, there'll be about 6,400 square meters of commercial space, primarily categorized at street level retail. There'll be themed res- retail zones. There'll be fitness, health, wellness, social eateries, uh, restaurants, cafes, that sort of thing. They're proposing a uh, public community hub as well uh, in the institutional zone block. And they'd look actually to go out to look for partnering opportunities for that space uh, here locally. I think a really key aspect that's pretty unique to their proposal uh, was the fact that of the development blocks themselves, 40% of their entire site will be completely open space, publicly accessible, meaning that the buildings themselves won't be completely blocked off uh, and and then, you know, say, fenced off for only private amenity space 
for those who live in the buildings or work in the buildings or, or are frequenting the buildings. Uh, it'll actually be open for complete public space. So 40% of their entire buildable area will actually be used for that. On the environmental front, they really take huge strides. They're targeting a LEED Gold certification. They're also targeting what's called the Well Building Certification, which actually focuses on the occupants and the users' health and wellness. This is, a, uh, this is an aspect that many millennials, as it relates to uh, work environments, have been looking for this well certification, and mainly it, it, it has a resonance in the commercial field. What they're proposing is to actually bring that same certification to a residential building, and it'll be one of the first in Canada to do that. But I think they go far and beyond that on the environmental. They actually have a goal in their proposal to eliminate natural gas consumption throughout the site uh, through tactics such as wastewater heat recovery, thermal, uh, geothermal heating and cooling, uh, solar and battery microgrids as well. And one of the really unique pieces to take that to the next level, they've actually signed a partnership with the Ontario Centres of Excellence to uh, form an incubator and fund Hamilton-based startups focused on intelligent city, green technologies, and use Pure 8 as a testing ground for that. So I think if you take all those things into consideration, those are some of the great features that uh, this team put forward. I, I'm not trying to be overly skeptical here, but you mentioned I've been on council for a number of years, and, and Chris, you and I have been in the political arenas for a long time. Uh, and i got to tell you, there, there can oftentimes be a big disconnect be, between artist conceptions and reality. Uh, I, how confident are you that they can do this? I mean, I'm, I, I've got uh, probably, when I left council a number of years ago, I had a desk full of proposals for this area. And they all talked about commercial entities and ever since we started the Waterfront Trail, and it just hasn't happened. Uh, so why is it going to happen this time? Well, I think for a whole host of reasons, Bill, but mainly part of it goes back to the fact that we've methodically, as you pointed out earlier, um, we've methodically went through this process since, since 2015. We've methodically actually, uh, you know, first by looking at the land itself, does it actually make sense? Can it be serviced? We did that. We checked that box. Council then voted to for staffing, gave us the budget money to actually take the lands and make it development ready. Then they said, go out and try to figure out a process on how do we take these lands to find the right private sector developers to do that. So we came back in November of uh, 2016 with a report that, that looked at best practices all over the country as to how other areas do this. Waterfront Toronto, City of Ottawa, City of Winnipeg, National Capital Commission, uh, other organizations and public bodies who have done this sort of process. The council approved that process. We first did an RFQ process that really said, hey, we wanted to, to go out there and look for the best and the brightest who wanted to make this a reality. We did that. In fact, we had 13 firms that came forward and, and showed, us, uh, uh, showed us what it was and who they were and why they wanted to have this opportunity. We shortlisted that uh, to five, uh, and there were four proposals in this. Uh, this firm, this group of firms, this consortium, I, I would actually say all four uh, who put in proposals were in the same category, that they, were, they all have a proven track record of actually delivering. That was inherent in the entire process, Bill, was the fact that they had to show us how, what steps, how detailed plans as to how they would methodically put this together. Um, and to cap all that off, 
um, we actually put a development agreement in with the RFP, which actually dictated to the proponents, and, and in this case, Waterfront Shores, exactly how the city was going to hold them to account for the things that are in the proposal. With uh, GIC's approval uh, of yesterday, and um, uh, hopefully Council's ratification of that next week, uh, we will look to negotiate that final agreement, which embeds contractually into uh, so that both parties know exactly what it is that they have to do. So as far as what steps are we taking to ensure that their proposals will come to fruition, it's right there in the proposal. They'll actually be contractually tied to it. What, you know, talk about retail. Let me ask you about that. And, and I get, we're still on the conceptual stage. I understand that. But but when you talk about themed retail, are we going to talk about a whole bunch of franchise stores that are going to be along there? Or are you talking about mom and pop businesses? Uh, I mean, is this going to be organic or is this just going to be corporate Canada and corporate North America that are going to move in there? Well, I think in, generally in their proposal, they talk about partnering uh, with uh, all sorts of uh, local areas. They certainly talk about the local food scene within their proposals. Um, I, I don't uh, remember any specific signed leases uh, that anyone has. This is obviously, as you said, at the conceptual stage. Uh, but, uh, of course, they're looking to make this a dynamic area. Uh, this consortium uh, has a proven track record. Uh, and all you have to do is kind of look at some of the other developments that they've done to kind of show that they know uh, how to do it. Exactly what and, and who those, uh, say, restaurants or cafes would be, I think uh, most of them will, will likely have uh, local interest to them. All right. You, you said that you wanted this to be a waterfront for everybody. I mean, we talked about that from a thematic standpoint long before you made a decision about, about this proponent. Uh, I live in Ancaster, uh, and if I want to enjoy my waterfront, uh, how am I going to get down there? And if I decide to drive, where am I going to put my car? Because I've looked at these drawings here, and I see a nice little picture of residential properties. I don't see a whole lot of things that are inviting for people from outside that neighborhood. Um, uh, as it relates to the renderings, Bill? Pardon me? As it relates to the renderings? I'm, I'm confused as to, uh, yeah, yeah. As to which. Yeah, I mean, well, as, as I've been on your show before, we're actually building an entire promenade park that stretches all the way around the periphery of Pier 8. I get that. How, but how am I going to get down there? Today, and they actually enjoy Pier 8 the way it is today. As they go to add these other dynamics, residential, commercial, institutional uses, uh, the new community hub, there will be obviously a whole bunch of new aspects for people to want to go down there. Pier 8 is a vibrant place already. This development only enhances that vibrancy even more. I get, no, I Chris, I get that. I get that. When we do studies and when we do surveys, uh, you mentioned Ancaster as an example. When, we, when we've done studies with people, interviewing people who are walking the trail, most of them are actually from outside of the area. I get that. And there's all kinds of parking down there by Pier 7 and 8 now, which is not an effective use of the land. But, but that's going to be filled with condos and retail and stores and everything. We get that. But So in other words, I, I can drive down there right now, and, and I, I'm going to find a parking spot, and I can enjoy the waterfront and have a wonderful time. I want to enjoy it even more. But how are we going to get down there, and how are you going to accommodate people from other areas? Are, are you suggesting they all take public transit, or is there going to be parking facilities? I, just, I want to know what the plan is here. So, Bill, we've talked about parking on this show many times. I mean, uh, obviously, we know that ultimately there is a parking issue. I want to make it clear, though, in this development, there's 1,376 actual parking stalls that are part of the entire development. They're actually located under the buildings and surrounding. Yeah, but the that's buildings. for the residents. I'm talking no, about it's visitors. No, actually not. It includes the commercial as well. So, in in any building in the city, when you go to build and say put commercial use into that, a restaurant, a cafe, um, some other retail use, there's a parking component that actually has to be built with 
in the building. So of the of the fourteen hundred or thirteen hundred and seventy six parking stalls, some of that is actually allocated to the commercial uses there. If you want to go to the store, if you want to go uh, to the restaurant or the cafe, the point that you're you're making, which is totally right, and we've talked about this on your show before, has to do with general public parking within the area. So the first is, let's remember that this uh, proposal does not uh, happen overnight. Um, the, the, you, you mentioned the fact that there's ample parking down there today. That will actually happen and transition over time. The areas that, that are not be, being built on um, immediately will be used for surface parking lot. Cities currently undertaking, we've already done a traffic flow and parking study. Now we're undertaking uh, a review as to where new parking structure needs to be located within the area. And uh, we've identified several spots within the Pierce 5 to 8 area that will identify identify where a new parking structure will go in our West Arbor Waterfront Redevelopment Plan um, that Council gave approval to. Uh, there is uh, the notion that we do have to build a new parking structure down there for public parking. All right, so so that's at least being addressed. And, and Because I know that oftentimes when we talk about developments such as this, and it's not just this one, other ones that have happened, uh, there are some planners that, that still are living in this, this futuristic place where we're not going to use cars as much anymore. The reality is, is we still do. And it's not going to change anytime soon. And and I, I'm just trying to anticipate that. And and look, if nobody wants to see the city succeed more than I do. And, and but if, for instance, we got Festival of Friends that's going back to Gage Park this year, and I know darn well that's going to cause all kinds of parking problems again. Yeah, for uh, sure. So so that's not your problem right now, but it will be come July. With the city's going to have to deal with that. Yeah, I I, w- I wouldn't like to just expand the one thing on the parking issue, Bill. That the fact is that Pier Eight. If we're looking at Pier Eight in isolation, uh, you mentioned the fact of uh, early on. Uh, at the take as it related to uh, to the entire area and the plan that has taken place over decades. This area, exactly what you see in the rendering, is exactly what the community in the city wanted to see in this document called Setting Sail. It is the one that actually laid out the actual land use plan for Pier 8. It is the one that wanted Pier 8 to be a mixed-use, residential, commercial, vibrant space that that looked for a new investment in one side, but also was an attractive place. That's why it, it kind of has the balance. It has the balance between the park space, uh, the the uh, the public access to, to the water's edge, as well as the residential mixed use. The idea was having people live right on the waterfront, as well as work and play uh, within the whole area. So I, I do think that when people talk about the parking issue, um, the plans for this area was actually laid out in the early 2000s. This isn't something that has just all of a sudden sprung up and this developer is looking to build on there. This is what the community wanted in the year in the early 2000s and you're certainly well aware of the setting sail plan. We oh, yeah. talked about it many times. So I do want people to kind of understand and certainly yourself to understand as well that although uh, the parking issue uh, is one that we totally understand, we know people aren't going to stop uh, driving their cars. We know that the idea of, uh, of having available parking and adequate parking for people is critical for this vibrancy down there. And we know that we have to solve that issue for the long term. But with that said, this is really about taking incremental steps to realize the vision that was actually planned for, you know, almost 18 years ago. No, I get that. I get that. And and I saw the vision. I passed. I was one of the people that supported setting sail Correct. Uh, as a counselor and, and certainly my time doing this program as well. I get that. And there were all variations on that theme. All the other applicants had, had variations on that theme. And I understand that. But there are some serious concerns. Look, i got about 30 seconds left. I know we've got a lot more time to talk about this in the next couple of weeks. 
have you cleared all the legal hurdles? I mean, I, you talked to, yesterday uh, to the committee about shovels in the ground in a relatively short period of time. I, 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 are there any bumps in the road here, or is, if council approves this next week, is it clear sailing, if I can use that metaphor? <laughs> to, to use that uh, illustration. Uh, look, uh, council, it, it's another step along the line. So two things uh, kind of immediately have to happen. Uh, upon council's uh, ratification next week, we will need to negotiate this final uh, deal and development agreement with the proponent. That actually would then solidify the deal with them. So that's the first hurdle. The second that we've talked about many times in your show, and I'm sure that we will, uh, will be the OMB appeal before the board. Our hope is that now that we actually have a final proponent or a preferred proponent in this particular case, uh, that uh, that now we start to get to some of the design details that hopefully will be uh, applicable at the Ontario Municipal Board. All right. Lots more to tell about this in the coming days, weeks, and months ahead. Chris, I appreciate the time today. Thanks. Thanks so much, Bill. Chris Phillips, lead, of course, on this uh, West Harbor project. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Trade is going to be one of the key issues at the G7 meeting, of course, that's going to be happening in Quebec this weekend with all the, the world leaders, including Donald Trump and uh, Prime Minister Trudeau. And, and among those issues is going to be the tariff issue. Of course, we know that the president has announced steel tariffs of 25% and aluminum tariffs of 10%. We know that uh, our prime minister has responded to that. Uh, with the support of the opposition parties. Uh, but what we, we guess don't get the context from is the other nations, because they're impacted by this too. The U.K., France, Germany, and others uh, have all got some stuff to say because they're going to be impacted by this. And they have also said that they are going to retaliate. So if we're going to start the balance sheet here about who wins and who loses in a tariff war, what about the impact that it's going to have, obviously, on Canada, but what about the impact on the United States? Joining us to talk about this is Walid Hajazi, who is an associate professor of economic analysis and policy and academic director at the Rotman School of Management at the University of Toronto. Uh, Walid, good to have you with us again. How are you today? I'm well. Yourself? Good. Uh, looking forward to the uh, G7 meetings. You got your popcorn. You get to sit in front of the TV all weekend? Yeah, no one knows what Donald <laughs> Trump is bringing in his, uh, in his bag full of tricks. I mean, just think about how unpredictable he's accusing Canada of being a security risk to justify the tariffs, and he argues that we burned down the White House 200 years ago. Yeah, uh, well, <laughs> I, you know, I would, I would love to have part of that phone conversation between the Prime Minister and the President when, when he said that. that that's a jaw-dropping moment, to suggest that that's the rationalization for why we did this, because you're an enemy of the state now because you burned down. First of all, it wasn't Canadians that did it, but... You know, why, why bother with facts, I guess, right? Yeah, and so this is the real conundrum he's in. So it, he needs a legal vehicle to implement these tariffs, and he's using national security. And I, I agree with the prime minister and uh, Christia Freeland, uh, the foreign minister. It's truly an insult to think that we as Canadians have been, been with the Americans in every major war after 9-11 in Afghanistan. And, you know, to think and in World War One and World War Two to call us a security threat is really offensive. You got to wonder about the messaging. I know we're, this this is a little off topic, but I think it's very germane to the discussion in another way because it talks about the attitude uh, coming from the White House. Uh, because he, the, the White House spokesperson, was actually asked about the relationships between the other countries in the G seven, and they highlighted Germany, obviously, which is still a major industrial power. And, and the spokesperson is one of those Fox News uh, anchors that's now working for the White House. There's a whole lot of them, as you know. 
And and her her rationalization was, we have a great relationship with uh, with Germany. As a matter of fact, uh, June sixth is the D Day, and, and that's the, the and and she's using that as an example about the relations between Germany and the United States. Yeah, you know, it, it gets more and more bizarre, doesn't it? It just shows that the people advising Trump. I mean, it may be difficult for the viewers. I'm sorry for the listeners to understand, but the, Trump is in a bubble, and the people around him that are supposed to be advising him. They are ill-informed. So this is a really difficult situation the developed world finds itself in, especially on this economic file. Well, and that's the, the concern, I think, a lot of the members of the G7, and I guess we even in the, in the public will need to have about this, uh, because obviously the response about the imp- imposition of the tariffs uh, was widespread, and obviously our Prime Minister responded, Prime Minister May and others in Europe have responded, but so did a number of U.S. politicians, uh, governors, uh, uh, mayors of major cities, uh, Republicans and Democrats, uh, saying, what you think you're doing? This is going to have an impact on this, but he seems oblivious to that. Yeah, uh, completely, and one thing I want to compliment our government on, you know, leading, you know, leading up to that first meeting, with Trump and Trudeau uh, last year, maybe it was the year before, but some time ago, the the uh, the Canadian government met extensively over 200 meetings at the state level because it's the states that are going to bear the brunt of these tariffs. You know, something like eight to ten million U.S. jobs depend on trade with Canada. Thirty U.S. states have Canada as their number one trading partner. This is a win-win agreement. The, the NAFTA, and the governors understand it, but Trump is playing more of a political game, not understanding that in implementing these kinds of tariffs, he's going to hurt exactly the base that he's trying to help. Well, and because we look at it, I guess, somewhat myopically and say, well, you know, we're, we're Canada. We're just a tiny, uh, population-wise, a tiny little country, and our economy is nowhere near as large as the American. So what impact can we have but I guess we have to look at this in the broader context, don't we? That the Germany, the UK, France, uh, other nations that are also impacted by these tariffs have said that they're going to retaliate with uh, with uh, similar situations like this. And that greater whole, Willie, I think would have to have at least marginal impact on the U.S. economy. Um, you hit the nail on the head, Bill. Like with the current tariffs on the table, they're going to have negative effects, but they're marginal. The fear is that when all of these other countries retaliate, which they must do, because if we don't retaliate, that will embolden President Trump to do more. It's from all of the retaliation, and just think about all of the things that we buy on a day-to-day basis that are imported. All of a sudden, all of these goods are now exposed to tariffs and trade disruptions. So really what Donald Trump is doing is he sort of attacking the fundamental underpinning of this globalized international economy. And it's very, very dangerous because in the past, when there's been these kinds of imposition of tariffs, when there has been retaliation and the retaliation escalates, it really dampens the global economy. It's not marginal. It becomes quite major. I, I mean, we've talked about some of the, I guess, the initial uh, impacts this might have. And as you mentioned, uh, products that are made with steel or aluminum, uh, you're going to see increases in prices like automobiles and things of that nature. And, uh, and maybe the others could argue, well, nobody buys a car every year, but it, it may have an impact on the industry, but not on everybody. But th- you look at the greater whole here and some of the retaliatory things that, and undertakings are going to be used by places like Canada and France and Germany. 
Uh, they're talking about going after the orange juice industry and others like this. That, and that's going to cost jobs. So th- there's a culminating effect here, I, I guess, of of the I guess the shock waves of the tariffs themselves. On top of that, the retaliatory measures, and you got to think it's going to have a, a pretty significant impact on a number of local economies, if not the the national economy. Yeah, absolutely. And in 2002, so 20, 20 years ago, 25 years ago, uh, George Bush had tariffs uh, instituted against imports of steel from Europe. The World Trade Organization then gave Europe the authority to put tariffs on exports from the U.S. to Europe. And one of the products they chose were orange juice. And the reason we choose orange juice, and, and uh, uh, Justin Trudeau has also talked about orange juice, mm-hmm as well as uh, um, Harley-Davidson motorcycles and whiskey and so on, is it's strategic. There are a whole bunch of states in the U.S. that we call swing states. They can go Democrat or Republican. By attacking oranges, it hurts the, the economy in Florida. And as a result of a Republican Party policy, Donald Trump, the Florida voters are more likely to vote Democrat. So that's why those products are chosen. They're chosen very strategically to influence the midterm elections that are coming up later this year in the U.S. And that's the only way Donald Trump is going to get it is when Congress flips and the Republicans lose their majority and he's no longer therefore able to implement the policies that he wants. But the three swing states that probably were the main reasons why he got elected in the first place were, were Michigan, Ohio, and Pennsylvania, and, and I'm told that those are three of the states that are going to be most impacted by what, the retaliation that's going to be going on. Yeah, that's right. So you think about, you know, this is the remarkable thing. Uh, you know, Canadian steel uh, and aluminum industries are much more efficient than those in the U.S. Uh, Americans buy four times more aluminum from Canada than they buy from all of the U.S. Those uh, uh, states that you're talking about that have the steel industry, they don't have the capacity to expand. And even if they do, they'll be, able, they'll be unable to compete with countries like Canada and so on. But the second thing is that going back to 2002, the U.S. economy lost 200,000 jobs. You know, Donald Trump's policy is meant to help the steel and aluminum industry, but every other industry in the U.S. that uses steel and aluminum, all of those industries their costs are going to go up, which means they're going to have to lay off people because their costs have gone up. But secondly, and most importantly, all of those industries that are producing goods that have steel and aluminum in them that they want to export to the global economy, U.S. exports are going to become less competitive because they're going to be so much more expensive. And this Donald Trump doesn't understand that there are repercussions to his policy. This, like it did 25 years ago, will result in a reduction in jobs, even in those states he's trying to help. There's a report that was done by an agency called the Trade Partnership Worldwide uh, that, uh, that looked at this and tried to analyze this, Waleed, and uh, they suggest in their report that uh, the tariffs, coupled with the retaliation from other nations, not just Canada, would reduce U.S. GDP by about 0.2%. Now, that doesn't sound like a very big number, but we're talking about a huge number with the, when we're talking about the U.S. economy. So uh, can, can, you, can you work that? I'm not trying to ask you to do the math in your head, but is that a significant reduction, 0.2%? Yeah, absolutely. That, that's a big number. And the estimates of U.S. job losses, they vary a lot, uh, Bill, because they depend so much on the magnitude of the retaliation. 
but the reasonable numbers are something on the order of 400,000 jobs. That's kind of with just minimal or with kind of the retaliation that's already on the table. But other estimates I've seen as high as 3.6 million jobs. To put that into context, 3.6 million jobs, the, the big financial crash in 2008, the Great Recession, which is the largest since the Great Depression, that's all the loss of 5 million U.S. jobs. So with full-scale retaliation, we could have a reduction in jobs on that order of magnitude. So 3.6 million, it's not quite 5 million, but these are big numbers. And, and by the way, anybody who's listening to this and says, well, why should I care? You know, that's what they deserve for imposing these things in the first place. But the, the downside to this is when the U.S. economy suffers, so do we. So there's going to be a, a, a magnified effect. Right? Even a, you know, their economy may suffer as a result, but that, that drags us down as well. Yeah, you know, whether the listeners like the U.S. or not is besides the point. We need America to be strong because, as you said, when the U.S. economy is strong, we are strong, and we need good leadership from the U.S. Unfortunately, we're not getting that now. And the sad thing, and I don't want to leave on a pessimistic note, but, you know, there's this gentleman by the name of Ed Luce who wrote a fantastic book called The Retreat of Western Liberalism. And, Bill, the point of his book is to say that don't think that Donald Trump was elected by accident and somehow in the next election, if he's defeated, things will go back to normal. These are really significant threats to the prosperity of Canadians. So I think we need to work really, really hard to try to get the U.S. government, and hopefully at the G7 summit this weekend, we can get the Americans to be more reasonable. But more fundamentally, it's my hope as a professor and the things that I work on, that Canada could improve its global exposure beyond the U.S., so we're not this vulnerable. Well, to your point, Waleed, I mean, we've seen this happen on both sides of the border now, where you've got people running for public office that, that are basically endorsing isolationism and saying, look at this stuff that we've been doing with all these trade deals, just not working. It's time for us to look after each other, uh, which I think is, is, is a very wrong-headed approach to this, but we're starting to see the ramifications of that. Yeah, and so um, Christia Freeland gave a speech last year where she said the only way to have successful global engagement is to have equitable domestic policies. What do I mean by that? When the United States has all of these trade agreements, lots on that, the United States benefits. But within the U.S., some people benefit and some people lose. As a free trade economist, I believe the government's responsibility is to tax those people who benefit from this globalization and support those people who lose to somehow transition away from the jobs that they lost. Unfortunately, the U.S. has failed in that respect. In other words, lots of people in the U.S. are benefiting from globalization, but the entire Rust Belt, all of those states that you mentioned that voted for Donald Trump, those people have no hope. So they say, you know, the enlightened view, what the United States have been doing for the last 25 years hasn't helped me, so they voted for Donald Trump. So really, I think the solution has to do with within the U.S. is they need to better engage those people that have been displaced as a result of globalization. Well, maybe, maybe, uh, fingers crossed, we can make some inroads of this G7 this week and towards going in the right direction again. Waleed, always great to get your perspective. Thanks so much for this today. Anytime, Bill. Take care. It's Waleed Hijazi, of course, uh, from the University of Toronto. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.